your blood, Jesus. Nothing but your blood, God. There's nothing that we can run to that can heal us, that can free us. Only your blood, Jesus. Help us to remember, oh God. Help us to be cleansed in it. Help us to seek you all the, all the time, Lord, in every situation. We need you, God. Speak to our hearts through your word, oh God. We want to be more like you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Hello, as um, the table's coming out, how about we turn to uh, Revelation chapter seven, starting in verse nine. As you're tapping and turning to that uh, place in the Bible, Let's, um, let me introduce myself. My name is Mike Copeland. I am an assistant professor of missions at Southwestern Theological Seminary and associate director of their World Mission Center. That all just means that I get an awesome opportunity to teach about missions daily and get to help mobilize both international students and local Texans and anyone coming to Southwestern, that school, to be built up in, in understanding the Word of God, understanding God's global and all-encompassing purpose of glorifying Himself among all peoples, and then how to get there. There being actually uh, in this world today, anywhere, and it's very amazing, and it's an awesome opportunity that I am very humbled by and scared to do <laughs> often. My family and I just moved to Texas from Thailand. We lived in Thailand for about six years. Before then, we lived in far northwest China. Uh, we worked with a, a Muslim people group out in that way. Uh, they do not look Chinese. They are very Central Asian. They had a Central Asian language. We moved to Thailand and then ended up getting to serve missionaries from all the way from India to Japan. Um, helping uh, them as they traverse life overseas. And what I found in, in that experience was, I knew this from my own life, but uh, missionaries are very normal people. We have the same amount of issues and uh, struggles and confusions and needs as anybody else. So to make a, a, a longer story short, my, my family's over here. We have uh, my wife, my two sons, and my, my two-year-old daughter is out in the, in the early childhood development center. That's, that's an elementary school. 
What is it? Not nursery. Is that what we call it? Anyways, doesn't matter. So uh, the nursery. I am thrilled to be here to get to preach this passage and to share this passage with this church because we are in the process of joining this church. But the reason, one of the reasons that we're in the process of joining this church is because of you and how welcoming you are. This church is one of the most welcoming places that I've walked into in many years. Uh, our first uh, Sunday, we were sitting back here, and we had our two-year-old, and we were just trying to navigate that. And the two people in front of us turned around and just got to know us and then invite us to lunch. Didn't notice from anybody else. All your pastors, including Pastor Lee, has done more than welcomed us, just been very kind, and it's been very fun to uh, get to know them and you. So let's look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. I'm going to read our passage, and then we'll uh, dig in deep, and then hopefully I'll get to uh, wrap it up to uh, all together. Yeah, we get to enjoy it together. So think of a cold open in a uh, Lord of the Rings movie with a vast amount of people just all of a sudden on your screen. Okay. So verse 9, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, and around the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders turned to me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our lamb, sacrificed for us, that we might have forgiveness of sins, that we might know that you uh, are king, not over just our lives, but over the entire universe. We thank you that we get to uh, spend time not only worshiping here, but that we look forward to the day that we get to worship with all believers, that we might be before your throne and see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. So, okay, there are Revelation, the book of Revelation. Wow. Um, in, in coming to commentaries and looking at this passage before in preparing Preparing for this sermon, I was reminded in all my studies how many opinions there are about how to even understand one sentence of this book. So what I decided to do was often we, we kind of come to this and we understand that it's talking about the future, right? But whose future is it talking about? And I decided, well, let's, let's first look at it and see it from the eyes of John the Apostle, the young man who was under Jesus' direct discipleship, witnessed Christ dying on the cross, was amazed, astounded, and propelled by Jesus' resurrection 
to serve a church that he got to see at Pentecost speak dozens, if not more, languages to reach many people that were in Jerusalem at that time. Then he got to see the persecution in Jerusalem and ended up at the end of his life having served in a small province in Rome and getting kicked out because he was preaching the gospel to a very tiny island off that uh, province's coast, praying for the believers that he had left on the mainland and not being able to comfort them. If you read his letters, you know that John cared about those he, he shepherded like they were his own children and he was separated from them. Now, if we look at those Christians that he had left, that he had mentored, that he had discipled, that he had pastored, that he had uh, cared for and sacrificed for and was persecuted for, we, we can see even ourselves and understand that Revelation even though it is written for us as the, the universal body of Christ, it is written for us today. It was also written for the believers that, and Christians that John so longingly wanted to comfort. And so if we, if we look at the passage from their eyes, then we can also bring us and understand what we can pull out of it for our own lives. Uh, so that is bypassing a little bit of whether you believe in whatever millennialism you believe, amillennialism, postmillennialism, prehistorical, premillennialism, all those kind of millennialisms. The, what we are looking towards from the eyes of the first believers to read this book is that the lamb is worshipped. And there is going to be a great journey between reading this passage and seeing the fulfillment of this passage. But it, 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 that vision, that understanding, we can see even today and enjoy today and look forward to and be propelled by in Christ's mission of declaring himself among all peoples in the future. So to give you a little bit of a background, okay, so John, the... He, he is probably, he is in his elder stages of life anyways, but he is exiled from this province that he has been serving. It's called the Roman province of Asia. We hear Asia now when we think of the long stretch of land, but really the Roman province of Asia in the first century was this dinky little province that butted up against the Mediterranean. And we see in the first uh, chapter, uh, second chapter of Revelation, we see that John is writing to these, there's these letters that Christ gives him to uh, send to the churches that he has left behind, seven churches. And those are all, all those churches you can go visit in modern day Turkey, and, but it's in this uh, small province of Asia, Roman province of Asia. So... At this time, it's probably in A.D. 90, around mid-90s. Uh, so we, we have gotten to see in the Gospels, John as a young man. And then we see in the book of Acts, John as a, a maturing 
and growing disciple and apostle. And now we're seeing at the end of his ministry. And the churches that he leaves are in this province that is very, the, the province was filled with very varying tribes of different Gentiles or Greeks and Romans. And each city had its own God. In Pergamum, one of the cities, which really was called the Athens of Asia, it's kind of like saying uh, Oklahoma City is the Dallas of Oklahoma. It's a little different, it's kind of dinky. I'm from Oklahoma, I can say that. They wish they were Dallas, but they're not. Dallas-Fort Worth area. But they have a altar to Zeus. And they find that they are the coolest city in Asia because they can worship Zeus and they have a, a temple to Zeus and they can sacrifice to Zeus and their whole governing body of the, the city and also the people find, and the farmers that come to the city, they find that if they, they get to sacrifice to Zeus and Zeus is their patron God and so they will be protected and cared for. So John, leaving believers in Pergamum, those believers are people who decide to believe in one God. And they're not even the Jews that maybe Romans would understand. Jews believe in one God. But these are weird Jews. These are weird people that should be like us and be giving alms to the temple of Zeus and be giving food and giving sacrifice and different things at different festivals so that the crops will come in at the right time, the rain will happen at the right time, all these things. And now you have people that refuse to do that. And I'm glad you're the one who dropped that and not me because that totally breaks the ice because now I'm not worried about dropping anything. So these Christians in AD 90, People are starting to get to know that there's these weird people and they don't give to the temple like they should. And when they don't give to the temple like they should, they're causing the rest of us pain and they're risking our lives because they will actually displease the gods or say the wrong thing and make them angry. So Pergamum is one example of the believers that uh, John has left behind. And you get the idea that they live in a place that speaks Greek. Latin is the language of the government. There's probably people who have different tribal languages that they kind of know, dialects of Greek. And they kind of have an idea that there's more than one language going on, but they're very localized and they're very isolated and they're very ostracized. And it's going to get worse. The Emperor Domitian is coming into power, if not already, he is not putting a persecution over all of Christians at all times, but he is putting into place, a, emphasizing a tradition of emperor worship. Now, this emperor worship will later develop into where Diocletian, the emperor Diocletian in about 300s, will say all Christians, all Christian scripture, all Christians should be either jailed or, or killed if they don't claim me as Lord, and all scripture should be found and burned to the utmost ability because any desire to serve Christ is antithetical, is opposite then worship and uh, being a good social citizen and worship of the emperor. So you have these people and they, John knows that most likely persecution is coming and then he has these visions of what will happen, that things are not going to get easier. 
they're going to get harder. Now, we live in a world that even though it is very dissimilar to this, there are a lot of similarities. And hopefully as we go along, you can see some of them. And as I wrap up and concluding, I'll hopefully tie some things into our lives now. But one of the big things is that the majority of Christians in the world today are actually not in the West, in, in Europe, in North America. The majority of uh, Christians in the world today are in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And the majority of them are minorities in the country that they live. So I know this church has engaged pastors and people in Cambodia greatly and done all kinds of other missions, engagement and, and things. And so the majority of people that Pastor Lee and has t- told me about they live in a culture that is usually pluralist of some kind. They worship many gods, or there's a Buddhist understanding of, of uh, worldview. They are also minorities. And whenever government or a religious society gets upset at anybody, they get persecuted because they're the scapegoat to uh, the situation. That is just one example of how our world is very similar to the, to the first century world. So, but let's look at the uh, verse nine, start with verse nine. So after this, I looked. So after what? <laughs> I got to pause again. In Revelation, there have been many moments where John gets to see different peoples, different believers of varying groups. In chapter three, it's a group of believers that are clothed in white robes. It's just intimated about a small group. And then in chapter 6, there's the, these martyrs that are being protected by the throne of God. And then in chapter 7, just before this moment, there are the 144,000 mentioned. Now, 144,000 of the sons of Israel. The idea is that this is the people of God. And 144,000 is not an exact number. It is definitely a symbolic number trying to show one completion, multitude, and even an understanding of, of an army. Now, this army is not an army like we think of it. It's an ironic army in that they are going to be saved and cleansed and protected, not by war, but by sacrifice. And one way to see all these different groups is, is John keeps getting scenes of this ever greater amount of believers. And then one way to come to this passage in verse 9 is to realize that we are going to be talking about all those groups together. So after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So as we look at, behold, a great multitude which no one can number. Think about a first century Christian in one of these cities that John has shepherded, and the churches in those cities that he's cared for, they are not the richest. There are some probably who, are, who have some kind of wealth that help protect that church um, at varying levels and from 90 on. But they are not a people that are surrounded by crowds of other believers. But in this vision... 
They're going, they, if, when they hear this read to them and when they read it, uh, read it to their churches, they are going to see a promise and an amazing promise. And it's a fulfilling promise. So a lot of times prophecy or, or uh, visions in scripture, we want to come to it and think of it as it's predicting the future only. And it's not really God speaking to the now. But the way in a biblical understanding of prophecy, it's almost always both. And here, this great multitude, which no one can number from all tribes, uh, from all, every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages, this would directly hit the Jewish Christians that have come to know the Lord and following him that um, John shepherded and also the Greek Christians that were coming to know the Lord and following him. It would hit them because they would go back and think about Abraham. What is the God's covenant to Abraham? That there would be a people innumerable than the sands on the seashore. And so this is fulfillment. We're seeing this great multitude and it's the fulfillment of God's promises and plans. We get to see that in many ways today. We've gotten to see it since the book of Acts. We've gotten to see it since the covenant to Abraham, but we even get to see it in Genesis 1, where the first command that God gives man after he declares that they're in his image is to go and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it as in be stewards of it. Go fill the earth. Get fill it with what? The image of God that is in you. And who gets the glory for being the image? God gets that glory. So this passage is a lot less about this prediction as much as it is a fulfillment of, of the promise and his plan. So they're standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The first century believers would have immediately recognized white robes and palm branches. And John, and being with his Jewish background, and also his work among Gentiles would be layering on meaning here. White robes, purity, but in Greek Olympics, victory. So there's an idea that there is victory here. And there's also cleanse, not clean, cleanliness, <laughs> purity. Let's just stick with that word. So there's this purity and victory together. It's ironic as in it doesn't, for their minds and their Gentile mindset, purity and purity don't necessarily always go together because especially where this purity comes from, comes from death and defeat and the cross. So John is layering on meaning. Now, also palm branches. Palm branches in, in, in a Roman world uh, meant victory as well. You wave palm branches in front of the governor or king. Palm Sunday, we, there is a little bit of that in it. But in a Jewish sense, palm branches also rep represented the Feast of the Booths or the Tabernacles. The Tabernacles is where they, this feast is where they celebrated that God delivered Israel out from Egypt and took care of them in the wilderness. So as Israel laid and slept and had shade from the brutal wilderness sun under different lean twos, really, God shows his faithfulness to this people and has showed his faithfulness to this people. It also has a Feast of Tabernacles also ended up having a great deal of focus on harvest. 
because uh, it was at that, it was always celebrated at the time of the harvest. So John is layering on biblical meaning here. Or better yet, God is layering biblical meaning here. That these people, this is the harvest. Pray for workers of the harvest, because pray for the harvest, the workers are few. This is the harvest. And we, we're getting to see it. And John is getting to share this with his first century churches. And crying out with a loud voice, my salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My son actually asked me one time, so how did they understand each other when they were crying out in one loud voice? So this passage makes a, a strong point. You know, this multitude from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. So one of the things I got to do when we lived in Thailand was I got to teach church history to a small Bible institute of hill tribe called the Karen. It's spelled Karen, but it's not Karen. And I know Karen means a whole lot of different things nowadays in the States. At least I think I know, because I'm new here. But it's Karen. And the Karen became believers because of a, a missionary in the late 19th century who brought his wife and himself, both of them passionately wanted to go overseas. And they weren't going to go to India, but they ended up in Burma. And in Burma, they met this people, and they started preaching and teaching. And for about eight years, this missionary named Adoniram Judson preached and taught, and no one became a believer. And finally, when believers started coming, they were from this hill tribe called the Karen. And the Karen now are Christian, but they still live in in villages in northern Thailand and in Burma where majority of their people group are Buddhist. And one of my students, we were reading this passage because this is church history, even though it's the fulfillment of church history. We were reading it, and he asked me, teacher, because they in Asian culture, you're called teacher. Like when the disciples said rabbi to Jesus, because that's normal, that means teacher. And I'm not even going to talk about the, you know, Jesus' response and trying to parse that out. But teacher is normal. And so he asked me, teacher, what language are we going to speak? And he was meaning him and the other Karen. And the Karen students that I had, they knew four languages. I was teaching in English because I'm a doofus and it was very hard for me to learn anything else besides English. But the Karen students knew Karen, their hill tribe language, their people group language. They knew Burmese because they, many of their parents or grandparents or themselves and cousins lived in Myanmar. And they knew Thai because they went to school in Thailand. They were learning church history in their fourth language. So he asked me, Teacher, what language will we be worshiping in? I'm like, you know four languages. I think you get to choose. And then my son, Kai, sorry for pointing you out, Kai, but he asked me, so, Dad, what, what language will the rest of us, like, how, well, how did they understand each other? So if you look at Genesis 11, what happens at the Tower of Babel? Yeah, these people that wanted to come together, build this tower, and they were forsaking what God's first commandment was, to go and fill the earth. They were coming together in opposition to God, making a name for themselves besides God, and then God decided, well, I'm going to mix up your languages so you actually do scatter, and that's what happened. This is a reverse and fulfillment 
They understood each other. It's just assumed in the passage. It's pointed out they're speaking in all kinds of languages. You have in Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes, inaugurates the church, what is the first thing the church does? Speak in other languages so that people could hear and know who Christ is and become believers. And then what did those people do? Because they were there during Pentecost. They would go back to their cities, go back to their places. They were scattered again. This is the final fulfillment of that. So salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, I feel like I probably should actually wrap up there. A scholar friend of mine brought this up the other day as I was studying and preparing for this time. He was preaching on a similar passage, and he says, between the great commission and the great multitude, there is this great lostness. In between us being commissioned, going, and when the final fulfillment happens, there's this great lostness. And that's very true. At the same time, this passage is not here to propel you overseas or to propel you to somebody who speaks a different language than you or even for you to engage this different culture that we live in today out of guilt. This passage is here for us to look at and celebrate and be enamored by and be amazed by and then want to worship and see people from all languages worshiping him and doing it together. Many mission sermons ends with, with a kind of a whole lot of shoulds. But this is something that we get to do even today. We get to worship with one another and recognize that God is promising, is promising this harvest. And we get to celebrate and look forward to and participate in that growing multitude. So I also have randomly in our move, I have uh, my report card from my senior year in high school. My son, older son, found it in my Bible. I don't know how it got in there in our move. We were looking through a lot of different stuff that we had on this side of the world before we moved to Texas. And somehow I, I must have found it and stuck it in my Bible. But my senior year is the year after I became a believer. And I became a, a Christian in my junior year in high school. I had not, I had a lot of interesting language in my vocabulary that I needed to get rid of. Um, and maybe that's the language that God was improving at this time in my discipleship process. But it wasn't my French. Because my French, the first semester of my senior year, I got a C. The second semester, I got an F. Third and fourth, I, I improved and I passed, I got a D. <laughs> So what's really funny is that summer, I, uh, the church I belonged to, it was normal to go overseas even as a high schooler and to take international uh, mission trips. And became, when I became a believer, I just thought, that's, that's what you do. So I found, I prayed about it, and I was in a worship service, and I saw a picture of a street, a Chinese street somewhere in the world, and it happened to be a place called Hong Kong, and I was going there that summer. It is very ironic to me that I was <laughs> not that great at language and I was going to be sent overseas. And I ended up being overseas. And language is really hard. 
But God is faithful. And I think that's where I want to leave it today. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good, that you are strong, that you know all things, that you go before us, that you stand behind us, that you guard us, and that you yourself, even when we don't understand your purposes, you are working all things to your glory. We ask and we celebrate that we could worship you with so many people around this world, speaking innumerable languages, And we thank you that we will in the future, at the culmination of history, get to be before you, the Lamb of God, with our brothers and sisters, crying out with a loud voice that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Ushers, come forward, please.